Hello and welcome to Leaving Egypt. I'm Jenny Sinclair. And I'm Al Roxburgh. This podcast is for you if you want to explore the unfolding vocation of the church in these times of unraveling. We'll be doing two things, reading the signs of the times and sharing grassroots stories. We'll be having some brilliant conversations with fascinating people and we'll discover how local expressions of God's people are contributing to the reweaving of hope in our common life. We do hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaving Egypt. Our guest today is Avril Bajant calling from Northampton in the UK. Avril is pastoral ministry advisor for the Catholic Diocese of Northampton, and she's developing ways to help congregations and clergy adopt a posture of listening to the Holy Spirit as a core practice. Welcome, Avril. But the first thing we want to do is give our listeners a flavor of who you are. So what's your journey been? Give us an overview of what brings you to where you are now in your leadership. Well, thanks so much for having me on. This is a really fascinating um, fascinating opportunity. And um, I love the, the leaving Egypt um, notion and the whole imagery around that. Um, so I'm a cradle Catholic, um, um, brought up by uh, uh, an Italian Catholic mum and a Scottish, self-described Scottish heathen dad. Um, and so being a Catholic was very much associated with my mum. Um, they got divorced when I was nine and that was tricky. Um, but the church was actually a really helpful place of kind of normality and, and regularity during that time. And um, so it was a kind of a choice to choose to keep on going to church, even when we didn't have to. And um, then I got adopted by a Baptist friend when I was about 15, 16, who introduced me to reading the Bible, which was uh, a new thing. She challenged me to read the Bible in a year with her. Um, And so I've always been a kind of a Catholic with a real kind of ecumenical interest. And um, when I was at university, really enjoyed um, going to... um, early mass with Brother Luke and the little Celtic harp and then going down the road to the Anglican Evangelical Church where the Toronto Blessing was happening with trumpets and blasts and people keeling over. Uh, So it was a very exciting kind of experience. Um, But the reason why I'm um, I'm still involved with the church um, as a kind of um, vocationally and professionally, I suppose, is when I was about 20, I had a a really distinct call to work at the church, but I was already engaged at that point. And I was thinking, okay, so the only way I know how really to be involved in the church is as a nun, and that's obviously not going to happen. Um, uh, what else can a good Catholic girl do? And so it's been a, a very odd experience, really, of just sort of taking the next step because there's no proper career structure in the church. There's no ladder um, in that way. And so you just sort of find the next thing to do. So my, I did a master's at Heathrop College, like so many people have done um, who are involved in the Catholic Church in this country, um, and went to work in a parish in Slough and absolutely loved it. Um, massively diverse parish. I knew I was going to love it when I turned up and they had basmati rice salad next to the uh, sausage rolls. And um, I thought, this, this is the place for me. I had four fantastic years there and then became um, Darsten Youth Officer and did research with young people. And I've always been intrigued really as to why, why young people stay Catholic in such a secular society. You know, what is it about that for them? Um, which years later turned into PhD research, which I'm just finishing up at the moment. And um, after 10 years as Darsten Youth Officer then became a, um, 
um, involved in my latest role, which is in um, adult formation and chaplaincies, pastoral chaplaincies. And um, and then as a um, synod co-lead, when Pope Francis decided that <laughs> this crazy thing called the synod, this worldwide engagement project was going to happen um, within a few months. Um, and we all put our head in our hands and say, well, we were quite busy in the autumn anyway. Um, and so got involved with that as well, um, which has led to some really, really interesting paths. And um, I suppose I've just always had a passion for seeing people grow in faith um, seeing people kind of excited by their faith and the opportunities that that brings. Um, but also really interested to see what's happening in other churches, in other settings. Um, and as a diocesan youth officer, did a lot with other, other churches as well, because when you're a youth officer, um, you really have something in common with other youth officers that um, nobody else quite understands your passion for teenagers. So um, it's, it's been a, a great journey. Can I just take you back to that, that word that you dropped there, um, the word synod, which mm-hmm. um, resonates in different contexts. So I think we need to explain what that means in this context. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I'm only just, you know, spent the last three years of my life working on it. I'm only just beginning to figure it out uh, for myself, really. So you you must have uh, lots of Protestants say to you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> lots of Catholics say that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, so, I mean, the, the, the way that we're using it in the Catholic Church at the moment is this notion of walking together, um, walking together in faith um, and being open, becoming a more listening church um, and being open to to listening to the Holy Spirit, um, listening to the Holy Spirit, speaking not in demo, sort of in, um, not as a democratic process in the way that it can be in the Church of England, as sort of synodical um, processes of decision-making that they have. Um, we are walking a different path, which is about trying to really listen to the minority voice, um, the small voice, the small still voice, and being very open to where the Holy Spirit's leading us, um, even when that's hard stories to listen to. Um, we've heard some very hard stories or, you know, really distinctive critiques of the church, um, but also joyful stories and people saying, I've never been I've never been asked before to talk about why I'm a Catholic. Um, so it, it has been. So I should just say it's a it's a worldwide process that's taking now, I think, four years in total. There will be a synod in Rome, a gathering of bishops in Rome this October and again next October. And then after that, there will be some sort of document or response. But it's been much, much bigger than that. So the Pope asked... Um, the whole of the Catholic Church to get involved in this. So it's been really exciting to say, you know, how is this Synod project happening in Trinidad? How is it happening in the Philippines? How is it happening in Nigeria? Um, And having that sense of being engaged in a a really global, um, a a global project um, of Pope Francis. There is a kind of tension though, isn't there, that um, a lot of people are seeing this as a, an internal ecclesial exercise, whereas I think Pope Francis had a, a bigger idea about this, that that somehow something had been missing in the formation of Catholics, that they hadn't been, in general, there were some exceptions, but in general had not been formed to know how to hear the Holy Spirit, which sounds quite shocking to many Christians. Think, well, how could that be? But um, for me, it seems to me that there's a significant reason why uh, Pope Francis discerned that, that now was the time to bring bring the church into this this practice because it's 
sometimes seen as a project, but actually he's saying this is a new way of being. It's about a posture, about attentiveness and listening to the Holy Spirit. And so how, how do you see that in the broader sense of not just internally for the church, but what is the church being prepared for? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's such a good question that one of the really helpful ways that we've been given is kind of three different ways of thinking about synod, which is number one, this just this process, this time bound process from kind of 2022 to 25 that we're involved in at the moment. Um, the second one is around ecclesial structures, so decision making structures um, across the church. And then the third one is about a life, a way of being, you know, how are our communities better communities? And for me, it all stems from that incredible moment that people might remember of seeing Pope Francis standing in the dark and in the rain in March 2020 when the pandemic broke out, talking about the fact that we were all in the same boat, that we were in stormy waters and that we were all in the same boat. Um, and I, you know, what came out of that was this necessity to be much more aware of our brothers and sisters around the world, but much more aware of our brothers and sisters in our own communities than, than we had been previously. Um, and, and that, you know, desire to say, my gosh, we can't be just navel gazing. You know, this cannot just be about internal decision making structures, although it's important that that is part of it. This has to move us in ways where we, you know, suddenly realize who is outside of our doors. Um, and there was that horrible moment in April 2020 where we realized that Mrs. Smith, who'd been sat in the pews for 20 years, we didn't even have an address for her, let alone any way of contacting her or making sure she was okay. So it's about community within our own communities, but community building outside our communities as well. And I think the Pope was really responding to the polarizing trends, you know, that we just see, you just kind of go on Twitter or, you know, go any kind of social media. And the experience of the church can be very divisive. And you can't other people that you've sat down and chatted to and heard their stories. You know, that's the amazing thing about the synod process that I've really felt is that I've seen people sit with really different views and actually have conversations about their lives and um, which have opened up those perspectives for one another. Um, so for me, it's about building our own communities in terms of it's not just about turning up to Mass on Sunday. You know, we have to be living faith communities, knowing and loving one another, even in our diversity. But then that then must compel us outside of the church doors. It must compel us to say, who are our neighbours here? And what is the world about? Uh, you know, how are we Christians in the world today? And how do we respond to that together? Uh, and, and, and those conversations for me, you know, somebody said to me, this phrase has just reverberated within me ever since I heard it, you know, synodality has to have consequences. Like if we just sit and have a chat, you know, what, what, is, what is the point of that? You know, like if I've heard your story and I'm moved by your story, then something changes for me. As, as well. And that change compels us to, even if it's just to go home and pray for you that evening, but I would then see the world in a different way as a result of the conversation that you and I have had. And I think that changes us as people. Would you like to um, tell us a bit about, you referring to the conversations for our listeners, would you like to sort of explain what the spiritual conversation model, the practice is that you're, you're helping people to engage with and what, what's actually happening? You're, you're talking about 
this kind of chemistry or this um, something that happens between people in this kind of conversation. It's to do with the presence of the spirit, and they're aware that they're becoming aware, more aware of the spirit working between them. What actually is happening there, and what changes are you seeing? Sure. So it's um, a really old um, form. It's an Ignatian practice, spiritual conversation, and it's now being called conversation in the spirit. So it's got these kind of different titles that people are flinging around. But it is, um, we've had loads of really interesting conversations about the word listening. It's like, when are we actually listening to one another? And, you know, I talked to my teenage daughters with her earphones in and she said, I'm listening to you, mom, I'm listening. But I know she really isn't. How do we actually intentionally listen to one another? And this process of spiritual conversation, it really slows us down and it makes space for the Holy Spirit. And it's a bit odd, but it takes a bit of getting used to. So you have a few rounds of doing this together and it's you can do it, you can do it one-on-one. Works with about six to eight people in a group and you have a question. So one of our questions was, what does it mean to you to be a Catholic? You start with a little bit of silence um, people don't always like that, but they can write or they can, you know, they can do what they like with the silence. But it allows for a parity across the conversation, which is to say that I will always give you a hot take on anything. Do you know, like the weather, whatever. I'm quick to be able to jump in. It's not always very profound or thoughtful. Having the silence allows for people to process the question and really think about it. The next thing we do then is to go round the conversation one person at a time and you don't jump in. This is the really interesting thing is that the person speaks and while they're speaking, everybody's really focusing on them and really listening. And because you are not supposed to jump in and say, oh, Jenny, I know exactly what you mean. That happened to me. You are not thinking about what you're going to say. You're really focusing on what that person is saying. And people have said, I've never felt so heard in all my life. Mm. And you go around the group and you do that one at a time. And so the people whose voices are quieter, um, people who don't normally get to speak for one reason or another. I actually had a young person say to me, I sit on lots of, um, I'm like the token young person on our parish council and other things, but I know I don't usually get to speak because people speak over the top of me. But this, this process meant that I spoke and I was heard. After you've heard from everybody, you then have another little moment of silence and you're really reflecting on how did you feel? What, what resonated with you? And it might be something that was a resonate, you know, resonance of something new or a resonance of recognition or an uncomfortableness. Like, oh, like I never heard that perspective before. Do you know, that is very powerful. So then the second round is to say what resonated for you. And you say, well, Al, that story that you told, I've never heard that before. And now I can see that topic from that perspective in a really different way. Now I've heard that. So you do that. And then the third round then gathers the fruit. So what would be the two or three things out of the conversation that we might want to take forward or, you know, that are a real fruit of it? And it feels a bit mannered when you start because we don't normally talk like that. We don't normally speak into silence. We don't normally wait in between people speaking. We don't normally, we normally jump in. But what I'm really finding is that um, this can be used from a group of people who don't know each other to a senior leadership team in an organisation. It can be used to talk about, you know, just what could we do next in our parish, right the way through to really, really difficult questions. You know, it's being used in dioceses to respond to clerical sex abuse, for example, um, because it makes space for stories to be told and for difficult things to be said. 
Um, and it is also really um, productive because you don't just hear the first two ideas that you might hear in a in response to a question, you'll hear everybody's responses and the complexity and the nuance of that when you you get sort of six or eight people's responses to one question. Actually, it's much more fruitful and much deeper um, than a normal kind of planning conversation or something. I'd like to uh, press into this a little bit. Um, you, you're part, part of what I think you're saying is that this listening actually needs to become a practice. So you have a set of questions that at the beginning can, can you know, it, it kind of feel formal and stuff. But in that practice, we are really learning to listen to the other. And that that is a critical, critical way of being as God's people. The um, Then, so from my side, uh asking toward you, is that the, for me, the fundamental question in the midst of those sorts of practices is how we as congregations, as God's people, are learning to ask not only how we listen to one another, but a whole other question, which I think is deeply present in what you're describing, is how do we hear the Spirit? Mm-hmm. And part of what you're saying, which, which I want to share, is that we, we are in a place where we hear the Spirit through one another, that our stories are not simply ancillary warm-ups to doing business. Our stories are the clues, and not just the stories of those of us in the congregation, but the stories of the people in our neighborhood. It's listening to these stories that begin to give us the clues to what it is that the Spirit is doing amongst us. I think that's what I hear you describing. Absolutely, absolutely. So the whole thing is kind of soaked in this openness to the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, we begin with with prayer. Um, we begin with. Um, I mean, if you're going to do, if you were going to do this with people who weren't church people, you wouldn't do. You wouldn't start like this because you'd make them uncomfortable. But as long as it's appropriate, beginning with some scripture reflection um, and, and using another ancient practice of the church, lectio divina, which is Benedictine practice. Um, and, and in which people just simply share a word or a phrase that stands out for them. And that's really like when we're talking about Lexio, you know, where is the spirit catching you in that phrase, mm-hmm. you know, in that passage? Where, where are you? Where is your mind sticking that you cannot go any further until you've really sat with that phrase? And it's 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 a really, really helpful introduction to doing a synodal conversation or a spiritual conversation because one of the things I realised, well, it does a few things. It models the conversation in a really simple way. So as Catholics, we're always worried about getting things wrong um, um, because we never feel like we're quite good enough to be doing any of this. And in Lexio, you don't have to know anything about scripture. You just say like literally that word, like, you know, the harvest is ready. Like, oh, that really speaks to me. Um, And that's all you have to say. But it's a spiritual sharing, which is very, very powerful. And it works in the same way. So you you just drop words and phrases in as they speak to you you and you're listening to one another. And then you realize, oh my gosh, I never saw those words before. Like I've read that passage a hundred times. I never saw the word and 
which is really standing out to me now because of what you said. And so right at the beginning of the conversation, you understand you are not bringing the fullness of the understanding of any topic to this conversation. The fullness is generated within that group of people. You know, the fullness of that current understanding is there given by the Holy Spirit, but like a rainbow, you know, it's like, well, you've got the blue and I got the indigo and you've got the yellow over there. And together we're making this. Um, And so we, we've found that when we've started with Lexio, it's then much easier to have that spiritual conversation because you're already thinking, I'm already actively thinking, come Holy Spirit into this conversation. We've, we've, we've started in that way. And so your listening is of a different quality. I, I found, you know, you're not listening for information or you're not listening to respond like, oh yeah, um, I think that too. You're really listening for the resonances in that person, in that what that person's saying to you in the same way that you're listening in the Lexio for how they're responding to the scripture. And it, it somehow just extends that, that time of kind of sacred scripture reading into the conversation, which is really beautiful. And at the end, then you're then saying, well, okay, Holy Spirit, where are we going next with this? You know, so where, what are those fruits then that we need to be taking forward? And you, you I mean, you're describing a, a whole, uh, what's the right word, a whole relearning of being God's people. Because we Protestants, uh, since, since the Enlightenment, have been wired to pay attention to technique. So when we come together as Protestants, we might do a little bit of Lexio on that, but underneath it, what's bubbling up is, what do we do? And, and that what do we do is usually, what's the technique that we can carry on? And absent from that is any sense of paying attention to, so what's the Spirit doing? And that question of what's the Spirit doing for most Protestants sounds like some kind of weird spiritual thing for strange people. And you're, I mean, what you're describing is, no, no, this actually is the way of being as God's people. Um, so this, that, well, I mean, what I'm hearing is that beautiful mix of, you know, you talk about Ignatian uh, examine, you talk about a more Benedictine kind of dwell, uh, all of it, if I'm hearing you right, is how do we root and dwell ourselves in one another's stories and out of that hear the spirit? It's not about it's not about technique. We're not going to come up with a new strategic plan kind of thing. Am I hearing you right? I think so. I think that is where we are. Um, and it's really interesting. I was at a, a, a an academic conference last year, um, which was a variety of churches talking about um, about uh, its church research and ethnography and ecclesio- uh, ecclesiology. And lots of churches were saying we're in a kind of post-strategy mode. You right. know, we discovered that the 10-year strategy doesn't really, doesn't cut it um, because the world is moving faster than that, but also that we are not rooted you know, it's so difficult to keep on being rooted back in the spirit when you're being driven by these kind of oh, strategic that's exactly it. principles. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I think that's where we need to be. But the other thing that happens w- with this process is that the other thing about Catholics is we've got this like, incredible 2,000-year treasury of spiritual practices, but we mostly outsource them to professionals. Correct. And we mostly don't think that that kind of stuff is for ordinary people. 
Um, and so I would not really probably in a parish necessarily say this is an Ignatian practice. Yeah, you might just to encourage people, but you don't want to put people off. You might right. say it at the end, you know, yeah. like, oh, this is <laughs> this has been developed by the Jesuits for, yeah. Yeah, for yeah, 500 yeah. years. This is part of, this is in our treasure box. Yeah, exactly. But it encourages people and it gives them confidence that they can listen to the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. This isn't, we aren't just outsourcing this to the professionals among us, you know, that, that this isn't available yeah. to everybody. Now, there's something else going on in what you're describing. And again, I'm asking as a Protestant, Jenny, you may ask in, in a different way, is that um, in Protestantism, we talk a lot about the, the laity, the ordinary people. But in point of fact, um, we've created professionals who manage what happens in churches and know how to organize people to get things done. Um, the, what's happening in your experience to the clergy in the midst of this and, and, and how they perceive their role in any different way in what you're describing? I, that is such a great question because I think that is one of the things that we still don't we're still exploring that. Um, And so for me, this whole synodal process is like a kind of 20-year, 50-year process. You know, we are just at the beginning of it. And and I spent a whole year or two saying it's like learning to walk. You know, when you learn to walk, you don't just get up and run around. You fall over a lot. You have a lot of bump knees and heads. And, you know, and I think that, that possibly the you know, how the clergy fit into the midst of all of this is one of those questions that we haven't resolved yet. Um, so in our diocese, um, uh, we the, the priests were great, um, but it, they were, they said, hmm, what I don't know is, should I be in the room so that people know that this is an official process, yeah. which we're supposed to be doing, or should I not be in the room so that people don't feel like I'm breathing exactly. down their necks and exactly. like controlling what yeah. should be said? Um, and and I, I think that we're still figuring out um, how, you know, sort of how that all fits together, all of those different roles. Um, and what, what we did do was we did some, um, we, uh, one of our priests who has the role of a amicus clero, friend of the clergy, um, ran synodal listening groups for our priests. Um, and we've since had a priest working party. We've had a series of working parties in our diocese and they have done this kind of spiritual listening and, and they've said it's been incredibly rich. Mm. That they've been able to say things to each other that they've never been able to say and be very vulnerable with one another. Um, so I think it's a tool for the whole church. Um, I think we're still figuring out how this works and power and authority is, is uh, you know, it's it's... How we deal with issues around power and authority within synodality is is still an ongoing question, I think. I'd just love to jump in here and just, I'm fascinated by the comments around outsourcing to professionalised and, and that whole business around post-strategy mode um, and trying to tie that in with what we were saying about the experience of the spiritual conversation. When I first did it, I, I was really struck by this sense as as you described it of um on my own my own interpretation of that scripture for example is is incomplete and you know I was in a group of seven and I had this really profound feeling of getting a different facet of the truth from each person a facet of God speaking through each person and all together there was a very moving moment of sense of completeness but only because we were together Mm. and 
And I think what's happening here is something like the church is being called, the people of God are being called back to be truly human again. Because we're relational beings, that's that should be our main modus operandi. But as Al pointed out earlier, post-enlightenment, we've been kind of tempted into this space of fixing things. The individual can be in control and, you know, we must find programs and strategies that, you know, that we then, and we outsource things to professionals rather than the sense of um, who are we as a people uh, together, individually, but in relationship with each other. And it feels to me like what you're describing is a, as you say, it's messy, it's difficult, there's falling over and knock knees and so on I really like that but a kind of a journey back to who we are as relational beings and in relationship with God that God speaks to us through each other is that am I hearing something like that from you Mm. that's very Ignatian as well isn't it yeah absolutely absolutely and it is uh, it's also that benedict thing of you know listen the youngest brother may have the most important thing to say yeah isn't that gorgeous and, and so we you know, sort of trying to bring that, you know, bring that sense of that together, really. How, you know, I think one of the things it really does is um, it, it restores people in their sense of, uh, well, it restores people in their sense of vocations of baptised. You know, like you are an expert in your own, in being a Catholic in your own life. Um, and and you have something to say that's very important about being a Catholic in your own life. And however that is, that's messy, it's complicated, we know that. But the, actually the story that you tell is the story of, of your relationship with God. And that story is an important part of our bigger story of the weaving together of the picture of the wider community. Um, and we just haven't been bothered about those stories. Mm-hmm. Do you know, we haven't we haven't been interested in those stories. And 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 part of that is um, just how you can hear with clarity from people who particularly sometimes look at you from the outside. Um, so we had a schools assembly just a few weeks ago, and one of the young people said to me, honestly, she said, you'd think that there was only five Bible stories if you heard the preaching in our church, because we never talk about anything else. <laughs> Looking at, looking at this 12-year-old thinking that's the most profound thing I've heard about preaching in a long time. You know? <laughs> it's like, what's the, where's the rest of Catholic teaching on a Sunday-by-Sunday oh, basis? Gosh. You know, I thought, my goodness. So, um, well, I got another question for you. And because I'm loving this. So I'm sitting here and I'm thinking like some of the pastors I know. And I go, but, but Avril, 50 years to make a change? Like, we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> Like, I'm not sure this congregation is going to last another three. Like, like, how do I do this in the midst of all, all the immediacy that's grabbing hold of me about whether we'll survive or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. Completely, completely. So one, one of the things about having worked for the Catholic Church my whole working life is that, you know, it tends to think in millennia, which is entirely frustrating. Um, and I, I completely agree with you. You know, we we are, the, the what happened post-pandemic in terms of our, just our sheer attendance, like who is in church on a Sunday, you know, that is an immediate pressing issue that is existential for us. You know, like if we don't sort that out, then we will not be around. Yeah. For, in 50 years time you know we will be titular like you know like you know here's the titular diocese of Northampton we don't exist anymore um I pray and hope that that will not be the case but um 
So, so what I think the synodality does is that it makes us slow down in order to speed up. Okay, so we've all been in those church meetings where we talk about a difficult thing and we get to the end of the meeting, we say, I don't really know what to do about that. So do you know what we're going to do? We're going to reflect further and we're going to talk about it again in three months. And then in three months, we have the exact same conversation. And that is what our churches have been doing for decades. Um, Now, for me, what synodality does is it slows you down. So you really have to, in those silences and in listening to the stories, you really have to reflect. You cannot just give the obvious you know, off-the-shelf answer to things. Like, if we're really talking about our young people and we're really listening to them, then it's not enough to say, well, we'll put on a pizza night. You know, like, what is that going to do? Yeah. Um, actually, by by engaging with people properly and by really listening, um, then you do come to the point of being able to make better decisions, yeah, I think. Absolutely. Um, and I'm, uh, in addition to my diocesan role, I'm um, co-director of a new project, the School for Synodality. And one of the things that we've done is trying to help churches do exactly this. Like, how do we take this synod process so that it then works out in in our in real time in our church communities? And we've taken Acts 15, which is the Council of Jerusalem, where Paul and Barnabas have gone, oh my gosh, we've been so popular. We don't know what to do with all these converts and half of them aren't Jewish. And how is that going to work out for the future? And they have to make a really big decision about the future of the church. And we've taken that process and given ourselves a kind of four-step process. So you have encounter, which is encountering the realities of the world, the signs of the times, what is going on in our world, in our community at the moment. Then you've got listening. We have to listen to all the voices involved in order to hear it. And in Acts 15, you have a fantastic description of dispute and argument and angry words. And that is part of this. Like, if we're just nice about this stuff all the time, then we're probably not telling each other the truth. So it's okay if it's not all you know, completely polite all the time. But then you come to the point of discernment and silence. And it's this wonderful moment where the, the community is in silence. Um, and and Paul and Barnabas get to the point where they can say, it seems to us, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit that. And so you have this community discernment that happens at that point. And then what happens next? It moves them to action. It changes the church. From now on, you do not have to be Jewish in order to be Christian. And so that process of encounter, listen, discern, act, is there in our scriptures. It's there as a process of how we go about doing this and how we actually do respond to the signs of the times by listening to the Holy Spirit and change the way that we are church. Um, So I think that that is sort of, we're working this out at the moment. As I say, it's just kind of a new way of being. But it's a really ancient way of being too. Right. And, you know, I think if, if we can be following in Paul and Barnabas' steps and holding some of this together, then we can then make better decisions. We, we are better engaged with our communities. We are better listening. We will come up with better solutions and ways of reaching people because we are treating them as experts in their own lives. Exactly. You know, then yeah. that has got yeah. to be essential. And I think if we're getting to the end of meetings and we're still saying we don't know what the answer yeah. is, we haven't heard all the voices. That's right. You know, if we're talking about young people and we don't have young people in the room, then whatever we're talking about is going to be no good. You know, I wish, I wish the listeners could see the video because my head is just going like this. I'm just in the midst of finishing a book that parallels exactly what you're describing. And I don't use the language of encounter, 
I talk about dwelling, discerning, and exploring, but it's the same thing. It's the work of the people in the midst of this disruption is where we hear the Spirit. I'm so encouraged by listening to you. It's great. I wonder, um, Avril, how how this extends into the community. How have you seen this? Because I, I can understand how important it is for the congregation to get this established first, you know, and it can't be rushed. But I, I also hear, you know, that the, the picture, as you talk about it, reading the signs of the times cannot be complete unless we're hearing the voices of our neighbours. So how do you see that happening? Definitely, Jenny. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, one of the things that I've been really encouraged by with this is finding that that, that um, these techniques of listening and, and discerning and responding um, also work um, kind of in the secular world. They're coming through. So if you are looking at asset-based community development, for example, it's a lot of this stuff. It is treating people as, you know, experts in their own lives. It's around real listening. It's around supporting people to develop um, the responses to their own situation. And so I think there's a lot that we can learn um, from... Those where those where there are parallels and overlaps um, of of saying you know how do we get out how do we get outside the church walls and respect people um, in in the expertise of their own lives so I think things like community based asset based community development are very very helpful if you go on the Harvard Business Review <laughs> website and type in listening leadership you will also find that listening is the new big thing in CEOs I mean it's so listening is kind of exploding in the secular world as well which I find is fascinating I, I can hear that but I'm also hearing very particularly this um, posture of listening to the Holy Spirit is is very distinctive and different from ABCD, different from that managerial thing. Um, another guest that we will have, have on our, our podcast, Nick Graves, is a pastor in um, South London, and he was talking about he doesn't he hasn't learned the, pra- the practice that you're talking about, but instinctively he's doing a similar thing, mm-hmm. and he's um, somehow enabled his congregation to learn to listen to each other and learn to listen to their neighbours. So this sense of like you take this practice, this posture of listening from within your congregation into your relationships. Mm. So you don't need a programme of ABCD. You don't need some framework. You simply become that kind of person. You become that kind of Christian for whom it's natural to hear people's stories, to spend time with people. As you say, you slow down to speed up because if you don't listen... And you often churches don't listen. They rush to a project or they rush to a, a social action before they listen. And mm. then they wonder why it doesn't work. Mm. Then they mm. wonder why why is it so difficult to engage with the so-called marginalized? Well, I usually say, well, do you have a relationship with those people? And the answer is often no, because they haven't started off with listening. Yeah. And not just not just a consultation exercise, not not a one-way street, but a reciprocal relational, as you put it, vulnerable, you know, vulnerable space where you're really engaging. And I mean, and, and in that, you have to be prepared, you know, for it not to work. Um, so one of the things that we did in our diocese was we we had a big listening project to try and really engage the, the, the margins. And then we talked about we don't like that word. We, we prefer peripheries. And, you know, we had a whole conversation even just about language. What language were we using to describe people? 
Um, but And so we had a big listening exercise where we went out and we... Um, um, gave out leaflets and said to you know people at church, would you give these to people who feel like they're on the margins and would like to be you know to have a conversation with the church? And I think about six or seven hundred leaflets were given out, and about five or six conversations were had. You know, and and we in our arrogance had thought that, or maybe if not arrogance, but I don't know, I don't quite know what naivety perhaps. Idealism, that, you know. <laughs> The, the minute we said the Catholic Church is here to listen, you know, the phone lines would be ringing. And actually what happened was a massive great silence, you know, and people didn't want to talk to us. They didn't, you know, for whatever reason, they were over it. Um, and so for us, there has a real been a real learning of humility in all of that to say, actually, how do we really listen to people outside our, you know, church communities in a way that they feel safe, in a way that they can tell stories. And we did get there in the end. We got some really fascinating stories, but very some very sad stories of why people were had disengaged from the church. Um, but you know, that the, it's it's that is not a quick fix. But, and but it, aren't we also looking for stories not just in terms of people's relationship with the church, but people's stories about their lives? And to, yeah. uh, going back to the the practice, as you were saying earlier, is to hear God speak through the exchange of story. So it's not so much, again, this sort of ecclesial-centric posture of we're listening in order that we can learn how to get better as a church, but we're listening in order to hear the fullness of God's message because he speaks through everybody and through our neighbours. And if we don't hear that, then we're missing half the picture. Yeah, no, for sure, um, for sure. And I, you know, I really like what you said about the the pastor who taught his congregation to listen and they were just better listeners in their relationships. And that's what we found as we've done our listening um, kind of formation with people who said, well, how, how will you change this? And they said, well, I'm going to listen to my kids differently or I'm going to listen to my work colleagues differently mm-hmm. as a result of this. And I would love it um, if... I mean, I think Pope Francis has given this not for the church, but for the world. For yeah, the polarized that's exactly right. World that yeah. Angry yeah. world that we live in. I would love it if people said, you know, oh, there's a really intractable problem here. Let's get a Catholic in. They're really good at listening. You know, wouldn't that be amazing? Let's get a Christian in. They're really, really good at this. You know, I would love it if that's what we were known for was our listening. You know, that would be amazing. But that's <laughs> got a bit of a way to go. I, I can see that. I mean, it's... It's a, it can be a very powerful tool, but I think also it's this sense of what is broken with the world. You know, it's it's something to do with people being divided from each other through this culture of individualism and this kind of practice of listening. We need to see it in a reciprocal way, not, not just something that we we know known for doing well, you know, like it's a sort of technique. But um, because if we don't do it, we won't, be building that um, relational power between human beings, which we need to do because, I mean, I'd really like to hear your reflection on on the Egypt motif. You know, what what do you think of um, the leaving Egypt idea? In, in, in our, we have ideas about what we think that means. I mean, what, when you say reading the signs of the times, how do you see that in your own community, for example? What do you see happening in terms of the unravelling? that the church can then, the people of the church, the people of God, um, through their becoming more relational, can resist? I think I see 
a world which is changing so fast. And uh, so I've got three teenage kids and um, sometimes I think that the generational gap between us is bigger than that between like the, you know, the Second World War generation and the people who were born, you know, the boomers, the, the kind of 60s generation, because the way they see the world is so different. And 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 there's good and there's bad in that, you know, that the, there's there's good and there's bad in every generation. But to have ways to listen with the world that is changing so quickly around us and reflecting and hearing the Holy Spirit in that, in the good and the bad, in the call and in the temptation. Um, I, that's, I think, what I really responded to with the, with the leaving Egypt was that sense of, you know, it's not easy to set out into the desert, you know. You're not easy to leave behind the food supply. That's what they did. Um, they walked away from lives that were that were hard, but with a certainty about them. Um, I hope we're not wandering for 40 years. I really do. Um, I hope, you know, but for, for me, there's a sense of surprise. And that's what we said in our synod listening was, please, well, our prayer literally was, come Holy Spirit, amaze us, disturb us. Um, and those are the first words of our diocesan assembly prayer. And we spent 12 weeks asking the Holy Spirit to disturb us um, out of our usual ways of seeing the church and seeing the world. Um, and, and I think that then opens you up to really interesting conversations. So I had a conversation with my oldest daughter and she's saying, mum, this whole thing about contempt about worship music about about Christian music she said it's not because that's my kind of music she said it's no more my kind of music than it's your kind of music she said but when I hear contemporary worship music it makes me feel Catholic mm. and when I'm at church I don't feel Catholic oh, wow. I don't feel you know and it was such a revelation yeah. to me to sit there and listen to her say that and to understand that for her it's not about a cultural thing about saying that's my I want to hear my music when I come to church actually it moves her heart in a way that makes her feel that she's in the presence of God mm -hmm. in the way that singing hymns doesn't mm -hmm. now for another young person it would be the other way around you know so it's not saying but I think to be you only we sat for about an hour before she talked about that just talking about, just teasing out and me just saying like, tell me a bit more about that. Like, tell me another story about that. I'm not sure I've really heard that right. Um, and so for me, there's so much more complexity and nuance in this synod journey yeah, than yeah. in, you know, just asking people how often do they pray? You know, or do you go to church and say, what does any of that mean? Like, what does it mean to ask somebody? How often do you pray? Like, why are you even asking them what they're doing? Um, to actually say, tell me more about why this means something to you. Um, tell me more about your hopes for your life. Tell me more about the place where you find yourself right now. And to have the time and, and the permission to dwell in that story and to dwell in that time with them um, then produces things that, you know, they don't come off a conveyor belt, those ideas. They're so rich. Yeah. Well, you, you, that, that's, it's a, that's a gorgeous story uh, in every sense. Because uh, part of what it communicates to me is that we, we do not hear one another, and therefore we do not hear God, without, um, without giving ourselves to each other, without the need for outcomes in order... 
And that listening takes time. It just takes time. And so I, um, I hear a lot of clergy who will be listening to this. Um, and it will, I think it will stare their hearts, but it will also do something else. It will be, how do I do this? Like, how do I even begin to do this? Um, and uh, so I, my, my sense is that there is a growing number of leaders, pastors, whatever you call them, who know the technique journey is over. The strategy story is done. And are longing for this kind of journey. Um, but still find themselves caught in all the managerial do it everyday stuff. Um, yeah. I think that we have been so bothered about boxes and types. So that when we are listening to people tell stories, we say, well, okay, you're a Sunday Catholic and you're a Christmas and Easter Catholic and you're a this kind of a person and you're a that kind of a person. And actually, you know, if a person is coming to Mass on Christmas Eve, then I'm intrigued not as to why they don't come the rest of the year, but as to why are they coming yeah. on Christmas Eve. Like, tell me, why aren't you at the Panto? Why aren't you at the pub? Do you know, like, why are you here? Why is this meaningful for you right now? And actually, to, to, to stop the temptation for all of us who are in that kind of professional role of, of longing for thriving, growing churches and wanting to see, okay, there's a person coming in the door and what do they represent? And perhaps they're, you know, perhaps they've got families, perhaps they could help with the children's ministry. Perhaps when those kids grow up, they might join the music group. You know, like we're always looking for people to be in boxes and groups, exactly. aren't we? But actually to say, there's a really complex person walking in. You know, I don't know that they aren't struggling with a mother who's got dementia that they're trying to find a nursing home for at the moment. I don't know that, you know, the cost of living crisis means that they're skipping a meal on a regular basis. I don't know. I don't know what are the issues. I don't know that they're in an irregular relationship and they feel really uncomfortable about coming into church. You know, I don't know that they haven't been for 10 years and that the translation's changed and they don't know the words anymore. You know, like there's so many things we don't know about people. And, and that actually... Finding those holy spaces where we take off our shoes with one another and, and, you know, and our faces are lit by the burning bush, you know, and that's, that's, that's those moments of encounter with one another, isn't it? Where we say we are on holy ground right now because the conversation I'm having with you, the listening to one another is a heart to heart and a heart to heart experience changes everybody who's in that. And you don't come out of those without maybe a scar, without a tear without something, but it changes us. And, and I think that's what we have to stop seeing our congregations and the people outside as, as numbers in a box mm -hmm. or potential givers or whatever it is to complex human beings who are there in all their manifold difficulties and beauties. I hear you, I hear you describing the most beautiful um, vision of the kingdom, Avril. Mm. Uh, You've talked to me about what, what does a flourishing parish look like? That was a question that you're always asking yourself and you're asking people to ask themselves in churches. And you, you'd said something to me about moving a wake-up call um, from being locked in a museum to, do you remember? Oh, uh, I love, I mean, Pope Francis, he has just, he has this, he has a knack with an image. 
Um, and I think most people would know, lots of people would know his image of the church as a field hospital yes. um, in the world. You know, come on, people. They, you know, we are, we are like the emergency room. Get out there. Be be where it is. But in his document, um, The Joy of the Gospel, Evangelii Guardian, which you just can search upon the internet, um, there's a there's a passage around, uh, it's 20, 83 to 87, somewhere around there, where he talks about the temptations of Christians. And he talks about the temptations of Christians to be locked into our own institutions and to be so concerned for maintaining these institutions perfectly that we become mummies in a museum. Um, you know, and so we're locked into our own, we are really no good for anybody except a sort of historical monuments. Here is a Christian who is, that's what they used to look like. And he talks about that, you know, who has robbed you of your joy? And then a few paragraphs later, he then has a contrasting image to this museum of zombies, um, to the caravan of solidarity. And he says, if we open ourselves to, and I'm paraphrasing it horribly, but if we open ourselves to these conversations, to the reality of the community as we live, we open ourselves to the flood tide of humanity and we become a caravan of solidarity. And I absolutely love that mm. because it's messy, it's dusty, it's dirty, it's got crying kids, it's got, you know, all the realities and camel poo and goodness only knows what else it's got in it, you know, but it's got it's got the whole of humanity in it. It's got sitting around the campfire at night telling stories. It's got it's got everything in there. And so that is what our church is. That's a gorgeous be. picture. It's a gorgeous, yeah, yeah. So somewhere from this early part of the journey, or maybe the fifty-year journey, or wherever it's going to, how long it's going to take, somewhere between now and and the future, there's this there's a sense of this caravan on the move. Uh, of um, how do how do we get from where we are now to the, a much deeper, more sort of stitched-in, messier engagement with the neighbourhood? You know, this the position that often many of the institutional churches are in at the moment is you know, losing people and they, they don't understand why. And there's a real loss of relationship, fallen out of relationship with, with ordinary people. And what you're describing is a picture where that's that's completely reversed, where there's a sense it's natural for the church to be a neighbour, to be part of that messiness, to be, a, you know, the the salt in that, in that life, as it were. And so that kind of takes me to think about, you know, what are the forms of association that the church might be part of or perhaps a partner to be seeding, you know, as a, as a kind of uh, a response or a resistance to this um, sort of atomizing, very polarized, uh, individualistic moment in our culture that everybody is picking up on now and people, you know, rightly feeling quite worried about. I've got this sense that what you're describing somehow is is a part of the process that may lead or could lead to new forms mm. of solidarity and association in our neighbourhoods. Well, I think it's a critical centre mm. of it. Mm. I hear Avril um, in in a world that's breaking apart. It's how do we how do we restore and reconstitute the dignity of the relationships with the other in ways that we, we hear the other because in hearing the other, we begin to hear God. And, and um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to speak too much on that, but the, the, I think for me, through all of this, 
one of the critical questions within Protestantism is, sim- is simply how to give particularly clergy um, the, the sense that they can lay down this urgency and that there's a whole other journey for them, uh, that they can join this caravan. Because uh, I, I think in, in Protestantism, the clergy are just deeply fearful of the disintegration and so don't see what, what I think, Avril, you're, you're developing and cultivating. I, I think that's probably, you know, I think our Catholic clergy, lots of our Catholic clergy would have the same concerns. Um, one, I'm tr- trying to remember the reference where, where I read this, um, but something that Pope Francis wrote pretty recently talks about laying down the, per- the burden of personal responsibility mm-hmm. for clergy. Mm-hmm. Like, you are not in this on your own. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things about synodality is that it stops being one person's problem. Like, this, you know, like, we aren't anymore... Um, we aren't the consumers who are coming for something laid on for us. You know, we are the community together. And so, but, you know, like that's hard. If that's been trained into you, that you are personally responsible for the growth or otherwise of your church, to lay that down is really hard. It's very hard. Um, Really hard. And I think it actually takes intention and prayer and support. Like I think you'd need to be in a group of clergy who wanted to do that together. Exactly. And who could talk, you know, and they could say, oh, there you go. I mean, I I always think about that, the image of the um, the Roman, um, the... the, um, the guy having the triumph in, in Roman times, coming in on that chariot and celebrating, and he's the great victories, won all these wars and everything. But there's the slave standing behind him saying, remember, you're only a man. Remember, <laughs> you're only a man. And I think that every, all of us, not just clergy, but all of us involved in professionally in some way in the church need somebody standing behind us saying, remember that you're, you promised to, you know, you're engaged with synodal processes. Remember that this, this is what you've signed up for. Oh, that thing that you just did, do you remember that decision? that you just took off the cuff because you were so worried about how that was who did you listen to how did that work out how was that synodal you know and that actually it requires a kind of a rewiring of our brains and our and our reactions exactly right. yeah but I think that's best done in community and I think you could send yourself mad if you try to do it on your own you know I, I think it's best done I, I just want to answer um, Jenny's question as well about sort of um uh, the, the kind of what does it look like to try and reach outside of our churches and a lovely image um, another one of those lovely images I've heard a couple of times now is that in the Catholic Church we have an image of the the Eucharist as the the, the summit and the fount of, of our Christian experience um, and and it's, a, it's used all the time. So it's used, you know, like this, why we should be going to Mass on Sunday this is why the Eucharist is so important because it's the summit and the fount Um and but the thing is that if you think about that, a summit has to have a whole lot of something underneath it. Um, otherwise, it's a very, very small hill. Um, so, you know, Everest, there's an awful lot more to it than just the summit. And people have started to talk about base camps of saying like, you know, if, if in order to reach that pinnacle, you're probably not going to get there on your own. And where are the base camps which enable people to have those kind of orientation moments um, and if we're asking people just to come to church on a Sunday, you know, out of the blue, that's a pretty high ask. It's pretty high threshold. 
um, particularly in the Catholic Church, um, where, you know, men don't have the words on the screen, you've got no idea what's going on, people are standing up and kneeling down around you with no kind of indication of what's going on, nothing's explained. Um, and so, you know, what are there base camps that we can be establishing to be thinking about how do we engage? Where are those groups that we want to now Jenny you're going to say Avril you're being very ecclesial and you know this is all from the perspective of the church wanting I would love to say that it isn't about just about getting bums on seats this is you know this is about saying here is a here is a richness to our life that says that the 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 the, the mass absolutely the Eucharist is the summit and fountain of our life but a summit has gotten an awful lot underneath it and a fountain leads to something else. It runs, that water runs away and refreshes. Um, you know, it's got to lead to a refreshment of a whole life. And so to have an, an image of a Christian life that's lived as a whole mountain rather than just a, a Sunday summit, I think is a, is a way of, of us thinking about our lives in a different way and thinking about our Christian lives in a different way. So for a for a clergy person, perhaps, who might be listening to that and getting a bit worried about losing control, um, what, what would you say? I mean, what could you give an example, a couple of examples of, of what you mean by base camps? And um, is there a pathway? Is there an intentional pathway to the Eucharist? Or is it enough? Do you know what I mean? The kind of question they'll be saying, that's all very well, but what's going to bring them to Christ? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um so I'm thinking about some of the, well, I so I mean some stuff which is really well known. Things like night fever um, at St Patrick's Soho, which is is Eucharistic adoration, but which is reimagined um, as coming off the streets. You do not have to be an expert to be able to experience this. Um, so for people who aren't Catholic, it would be a very intensive form of prayer, which when I was a child was mostly done by really, really holy grandmas. And, and I remember being introduced to this, you know, eight, nine in a Catholic primary school, and you sit still, you're in front of the Lord, behave yourself. You know, it was hardly um, a very spiritual experience. But being able to reimagine some of our spiritual, um, most spiritual experiences as being open to everybody, you know, come on in and just light a candle and be with Jesus for a bit. You know, that's it's very simple. Um, I love, we've got a new parish priest in my parish and um, he um, discovered, he turned up for a meeting and discovered our church car park was absolutely rammed and discovered that the local school, the mums park in our car park and walk up the hill to the school. And so he has decided to change the time of the weekday mass to a time when they're coming back to their cars. Um, it was at quarter past 10 and it's now half past nine so that they can go up the hill, drop the kids off, come back and go to mass. And I think, you know, that's really basic. It's really basic times when we are doing stuff, you know. But but I think for a, you know, for a clergy person thinking about this stuff, I would say stop worrying about doing everything. Because that, that is that consumerist thing, which says we've got to have a tick box and we've got to provide something for everybody from the babies right through to, you know, sort of very elderly people. Think about your charism. You know, think about your community. Who is outside your door? And so one of the things, the first parish I worked in um, was in the middle of Slough. And we decided to change our Friday weekday mass time to 12.30 because we're right in the middle of where all the offices were. And we said, if we change the time, then people can come out in their lunchtime, they can come to mass. 
So simple. And we were getting 40 or 50 people coming to Mass on a Friday. And then we put Stations of the Cross in and, and things. And we started to say, let's think about ourselves as a town centre church. You know, like, we don't have to do evening Masses. No one is here. But they're all here in the daytime, you know. Are you a rural church, which is in the middle of nowhere? Okay, so how does your charism work? Actually, your charism is to be a Catholic presence for perhaps, you know, tens of miles around you. What does that look like? Um, are you a parish in the suburbs, which is right next to the school? Okay, so like do loads of family things, but don't worry about doing everything. Do something and do it well. You know. So I, I, I love that you're talking about charism. It, you, you're actually asking a church to say, who are we in this place? How is God calling us in this place, our unique uh, calling? And it's that, as you say, it's actually quite simple. So you don't have to be rolling out every program that every other church is doing. What is it that we are particularly called to do? So that piece of discernment can be can be done through that um, spiritual conversation. That's yeah that, yeah. that to me is exactly it because the mm. it's not about well, let's have a church meeting or a series on who are we in this community because that's all going to result in top down identity stuff. It's build deep into the engagement with the dwelling, the lectio, with the questions, with the listening to the stories, doing that together and with neighbors in that space, then we can ask, who is God calling us to be in this space? And that's a whole different way of coming at it than you know, the strategic planning meeting to say, what's our identity in this community? And it doesn't have to be doing more. No. I think that's the other issue, you know, is that I think increasingly clergy are asked to just do more and more, like take on that extra church and take on this extra chaplaincy responsibility. And, you know, no, let's not, let's not be running around. You know, let's actually, again, it is that, it's that having that time for reflection and saying that the conversation I'm having right now is the most important thing I can be doing. Um, and one of the things which I love um, about the, the Catholic clergy that I meet and the other clergy that I meet is there's very few people who have time to hang out with distressed people. And there's very few people who are good at it. You know, like it actually used to be like the neighborhood women who when somebody died would come over and they would clean the body and they would cook the dinner and they'd look after the baby and they would sort out everything and they would know how to grieve with a person. And we don't know how to do that anymore. And actually clergy are one of the very few people who know how to sit with a, with a person as they're dying, who know how to talk to the family, you know, who know how to spend time, but how to, what to say and what not to say, you know. And I actually think that we, we really devalue some of that when we are running off to do the next thing in the strategy, you know. I mean, it, it's really difficult because the phone is ringing and, you know, there's, there's emails are coming in and there's pressure, pressure, pressure. But actually, the moment there is a precious moment with the Holy Spirit present as that person is dying with that family. And, and I don't think that clergy um, appreciate their own skill enough in in what they do because they do it all the time and they feel it's really normal but it's it's very precious well i often hear um clergy who long to be able to do that but they're they're so tied up with estates management or as you say answering the phone or whatever 
fundraising or whatever it is, that they actually don't have the time to be the pastoral priests they were originally called to be. So you're quite right. There's something got to happen to release them to be the person they were called to be. And I hear you saying through not having to do everything themselves, not to be falling into that individualistic sort of managerial role. You're talking about co-responsibility, where the lay people in the congregation share a whole variety of roles. Um, how you know what is what is the church? It's a group of faithful people in a place. How do we become communities of place? Mm. And how do we build relationships where we live? And I think we. And I don't know whether this is perhaps because it was often done by women and often done domestically, so it's unrecognised, and now it goes unrecognised in clergy as well for the same reason. But all of that soft skill stuff, is is it requires expertise and wisdom and not to say the wrong thing, you know. And, and actually, that by saying um, we're going to be co-responsible across this. We're also saying that this is hard and it requires skill and it requires support and that it doesn't necessarily come naturally, but that that's okay. You know, actually across a congregation, we can do this together as long as we're not burdening people and asking them to do more than they are skilled and supported to do. Mm-hmm. But but for sure that they're, um, it's, it's seeing amongst the pressures of every day Again, back to those synodal conversations, you know, where was the Holy Spirit really pulling us? Um, and sometimes that does mean to do less in some places, which is hard. Um, sometimes it means to say, do you know what? We're not going to persevere with this youth group, which is just not working at the moment. We're going to let that go fallow for a year or two. We're going to focus on something else and we're going to pick that up again um, when we perhaps got the right person. That is really hard. Um, but perhaps we say, well, but we're going to support the next parish along in their youth project and we're going to send some volunteers down the road and we're going to send some money and we're going to support them to do it. Um, but we're going to let it go fallow in our place because it's consuming a huge amount of our own time and energy. Mm-hmm. Our this has been amazing. We've really loved this conversation. I just wonder if there's anything at the last minute that you would like to share. If there's something on your mind thinking through the whole conversation that we've had I would say that this is hard but it's worth mm. it um, I, I would say if you try this sometimes it will fall flat so I will just put out there that some of our parishes did 50 listening opportunities and had hardly anybody turn up for them <laughs> so if that happens to you that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't in the process it means that perhaps we've just started in the wrong place you know and that we needed um when we're saying to people, we really want to listen to you, if we have said that to them before and we haven't listened to them, then that mm-hmm. they will be cynical about being asked to contribute again. Mm-hmm. So I would say, go gently with yourself if you want to try this out. It is amazing, but it is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's absolutely worth it. But you will also hear things that you don't want to hear. And that has to be part of it. Um, you know, and actually what the, the synod documents, one of the synod, the preparatory documents says, if there's no dissent, if there's no dissent, if all the voices are saying the same thing, it's not a synodal conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. So if people want to find the kind of resources that you're, or guidance that you're developing, where would they find that? Oh, on, us, on our website. So schoolforsynodality.org.uk. 
Um, and we've got a whole series of podcasts coming up with some amazing people. Um, one of the things about the synodal process, as I've said, is it's a global process. And so we've got somebody who's um, uh, expert in this from um, um, Latin America, who's going to talk about their experience. We've got two incredible sisters um, from Central Africa speaking about their experiences. And we are, um, I'm hoping that somebody from the Philippines is going to be part of this as well. And it's called Practicalities of Synodality because it's it's completely around this. Like, how do we actually do this stuff? You know, so we're talking about power. We're talking about what works and what doesn't work. We're talking about when things go wrong. We're talking about how do you move to action at the end of the day. Um, and we've got some great people. I'm uh, really honoured that people have um, wanted to come on and have those conversations with us. So I think that they will, if people are interested in just how, how do we practically get on and have a go at this, then that might be of help to them. Thank you, Avril. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I suspect this conversation will continue. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Leaving Egypt. We look forward to you joining us again on the next episode. In the meantime, you can find out more at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk And you can find me on alanroxborough.com And do check out Leaving Egypt on Substack too. This podcast is brought to you by Together for the Common Good and the Missional Network. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you'd normally listen to your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. So that's it from us. I'm Al Roxborough. And I'm Jenny Sinclair. Thank you so much for listening. God bless and see you soon. Mm -hmm.